Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend Peter Pike for a discussion of Alex Garland's Ex Machina. Alex Garland is primarily a writer in Hollywood and also a writer of computer games, and he seems to have an interest in sci-fi. As do I, and as does my friend Peter, who has written on sci-fi. Hello Peter, please introduce yourself for our audience. I'm Peter Pake. I've been teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for the past 17 years, and presently I have a research position at Yonsei University in Seoul, South Korea. I wrote a book titled From Utopia to Apocalypse, Science Fiction and the Politics of Catastrophe, which came out in 2010, which focuses on depictions of revolutionary upheaval in contemporary science fiction texts, focusing mostly on the comics of Alan Moore. And nowadays I'm doing research on a variety of topics, including the 19th century French novel. I have that book, and I recommend it, easily found on Amazon. And of course, it's always a pleasure to talk to you on Facebook about French novelists. Now, out in theaters is Alex Garland's second directorial feature, Annihilation, which is a combination of his concern for horror and sci-fi, an attempt to figure out whether life evolving means that life is monstrous, or whether there is any kind of humanity. That's a movie with all female leads, so it's very interesting to get at the question of creation and generation. These things also come out in the movie we're discussing today, Ex Machina, his directorial debut from 2014. a movie about creating AI, but it's also an interior drama about men and women that uh, is so constrained it almost makes you think of Ibsen's Dollhouse. I'll give a brief overview of the plot, and then Peter and I will just take you through the story and notice the various details that this constrained environment allows the director to set up and to develop at his own pace. So, the story is this. An eccentric billionaire, Nathan, played extraordinarily by Oscar Isaac, invites to a small Alaskan retreat a young man called Caleb, played by Donald Gleason, who works for him as a talented coder. The invitation is orchestrated as winning a contest to spend a week with this founder CEO, who's a somewhat mythical figure. He's a recluse, he's incredibly powerful, but covered in mystery. And here he is reaching out to the staff, to the mere worker bees. But it turns out very quickly that it's supposed to set up a test. Our founder has fulfilled the dream and created an AI. And he wants the young coder to do a Turing test, that is to say, to figure out whether in conversation he can tell it's an AI and not a real human being. Because if you can't tell the difference, there is no difference. This is the strange implication of the Turing test, and it's teased out in the movie. So, from the beginning, the whole asymmetry of power, the difference between being in charge, creating the future, and on the other hand, being surprised by the future and trying to adjudicate it, whether it fits humanity, is on display. And while we cannot explain how talented the actors are or how good their performance is, it's uncanny the combination of meritocratic hierarchy imposing itself on people's private lives and social interactions and conversation, even as they are trying to work out their democratic mores, casual clothing, and friendly chatter. There's even a level of frat house bro talk that conceals and complicates this hierarchy. So much for the overview. 
Peter, thanks for joining me. I became interested in this movie because of you. You wrote a post that got at the question of eroticism, creation, parenthood, and the future, and I thought it was extraordinary, astute and witty at the same time. Tell me your thoughts about the movie, and where should we start with our conversation? Well, I think we can start with the corporate set. The film begins with Caleb receiving the notification that he's won a lottery a week with the boss, Nathan, at his retreat. And Nathan is described as a Mozart of coding, one in a billion uh, genius who has established this search engine company. 90% of all searches take place over it. So he's the recipient of this lucky ticket. It really reminded me of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> It's like this invitation to go to a place that is secret and magical. And of course, everybody in the company is congratulating him. One of his co-workers gives him a warm hug. At this point, he's the center of attention. He's the lucky one in the cubicle farm. This whole corporate structure where you're a nobody up until you get attention, and then all of a sudden you're a somebody. The touch of the mythical king can elevate you above the common rank. But it is also an opportunity because there's mystery at the top. There may be thousands yeah. working for him doing the job he created but how did that guy do it why is he superior to us why does he get all the attention and how does power enshroud itself in mystery it mm -hmm. reaches out to touch you in ways that you don't understand you can't anticipate yeah and of course it comes out when he actually meets him and in order to get to this retreat the wilderness the helicopter can't go very far we have this wonderful sequence where caleb is dressed in a suit and he has this very lean and, and gawky frame and he's told to keep his uh, head down because of the helicopter rotors and instead of carrying a backpack which would be more appropriate for the setting he has a piece of luggage with wheels on it that he's dragging across i guess the savannah or, yeah, or expected the... to be dropped off at some resort in fact he's just dropped in the middle of the wild and he's told follow the river down you'll get to the yeah. place but i think it also goes to show like how these wild and untamed spaces are now in essence commodified the preserve of the uber rich they can enjoy the distance and privacy away from civilization so it is a very remote castle a refuge to which he is traveling Yes, wilderness is something to which people might aspire by way of freedom, but it's private property. In the helicopter, he asks the pilot, when do we get to his estate? And says, we've been flying over it for hours. You can buy yeah. vast amounts of land and hide somewhere in there. You can create your yeah. own privacy. And of course, when he checks his phone, uh, it says no network. So it really is an untouched, pristine corner of the globe. It's of course, land he... before technology, before humanity. And that fits the theme of creation in the story. Ah, yes. And then he gets to this place where all of a sudden he sees a modernist architecture compound that fits American eccentricity. It's on a cliffside? You go in, you have to go down a few levels, and then you're underground, and you enter all of a sudden this cave-like environment. Yeah, and we're told that this is a research facility. One um, level looks like a ski lodge in the mountains. The level below looks like corporate central underground, low ceilings, hallways, glass doors, and walls. And it's called a research lab. Yeah, but when Caleb first sees Nathan, Nathan is working out. He's hitting a punching bag. Yep, that's another difference between working in a corporation and running a corporation. Our ruling class really is stronger, faster, tougher, fitter than the people they rule. Yeah. <laughs> and so throughout the movie, you see this guy working the punching bag, lifting weights, doing a lot mm -hmm. of manly, hard, exhausting physical work. And so the film sets up a really interesting contrast between two basic types of men. 
the very active, confident, and certainly very much in control, Nathan. And then Caleb, who's awkward. When he first sees him, he has a very enthusiastic smile. He is very clearly out of place, and he's trying to be polite and friendly, but also very much in awe of his surroundings. And then we have this really interesting conversation where Nathan basically confronts him and says, hey, can we just get past this? I know that you're totally freaked out by being here. Can we just be, what, two guys for this week? That's where the mind games start. The young man, confused as he is, at least has an authentic awareness of the differences between them. He realizes this guy is strong, violent, and although he's balding, that's middle age coming up on you, he's nevertheless got a beard, another sign of virility he insists on. Whereas he himself, you see him shaving repeatedly, but he's just this soft ginger pastel guy, doesn't have a wisp of beard. That makes a big difference, and you wonder, is he looking for a father, for a big brother? Whereas the other guy wants to suspend that and give this seemingly democratic egalitarian notion. Let's just be two guys talking, having a beer. We'll be doing something fun. But that, of course, conceals the fact that he's pulling all the strings. And it's supposed to make the young man even more anxious because he's refused any human content to the relationship. Of course, we're not equals. But what Mm -hmm. are we? The adult in the room doesn't want to say. Yeah, and of course, the conversation that immediately follows is about the card key. There are certain doors that Caleb's key just will not open. So after this big show of let's be friends, let's treat each other as just a couple of guys, we're equals, he says, oh, you can't go everywhere. I have control over where you can go. Yeah, it's a part of the corporate world. Control is subtle, it's indirect. You have the key card to open doors, but only some doors. You get some access. It's another theme here. This is a world where property is being replaced by access. Really, what is there left to be amazed at? What could justify the mystery in which a founder enshrouds himself? Well, he's gone to the next level. Yes. And of course, in order for him to find out, he has to sign this long agreement, which sets all these conditions on having his privacy invaded, possibly at any time, to ensure that he has not passed on proprietary information. And when he's reluctant to sign it, Nathan basically says, well, you're dead center at a historic moment. If you don't sign, you will regret this for the rest of your life. He has the power to make people regret things for the rest of their lives. Yeah. He's also offering something unprecedented. But again, you can't have it on your own terms. You just have access to something that is of somebody else's design. And the young man has to ask himself, what's worth having for the rest of your life? Your sense that you shouldn't be doing imprudent things or this one chance at something magical. Mm -hmm. And the young man maybe doesn't really think life would be worthwhile otherwise. Yeah, I think that comes out later on in the film, that he's very lonely. He doesn't have a relationship. His parents died in a car accident. These were all reasons why he was chosen in the first place. He is the kind of person who would leap at chance and risk the unknown. Yes, he has less to lose than other people, and he longs for what other people already have, family, love, friendship. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fairy tale elements to this story. Forbidden doors that you can't go through calls to mind Bluebeard. Exactly. (laughs) And then I guess maybe we can move on to his first glimpse of Ava, the female android that he'll be testing to find out whether she has developed autonomy. And this is a powerful moment in the film where he first sees her, and it's through a series of glass doors. She's walking in a delicate manner under the shadows, a fragile being. And when we first catch sight of her, part of her torso is transparent. She has a human face and hands, but the rest of her looks very much like a machine. 
the image itself gives you the content of that reassuredness. Her outside or her interaction to the world, her feet, her arms, her face, is human-like and therefore opaque. But her innermost, the thing that might scare you, is actually transparent. Yeah. You can see straight to her spine and through her. And that's supposed to reassure you because there's nothing hiding there. Yeah, but it's very strange. It sets up the situation where, I guess, the love interest is not naked. She's actually transparent. So that in order for her to become fully an object of attraction to Caleb, and of course, this is one of the major themes in the film, she has to put on covering. Yes. So when they first meet, he's clearly fascinated by her, but it's not immediately a matter of he doesn't desire her. No, there's something about her that is beautiful and attractive, but it's not exactly human. It is more yeah. curiosity than love. And at this point, he feels fairly confident to stare at her, to talk to her, because he's supposed to conduct a test on a machine. That reassures him. And throughout their first conversation, he acts as though he's not just in control of himself, but the conversation. Yeah. She points out this fact a couple of times. The movie is set to take place over a week, and that, of course, reminds us of the account of creation in Genesis. You pointed out love is somehow tied up with shame and covering up, just like Adam and Eve discover shame and cover up, and that is the sign that they are falling in love, actually. Now they know there is a reason to hide, that there's something to hide, because you might not be loved back quite the way you wanted to. Yeah. So also here, Caleb and Ava go through this initial attraction, but before it can turn into love, she has to put on a dress, and one day she asks him to close his eyes, and she goes out of the room and gets dressed. You see there the secrecy and the curiosity, because she's just going in another room, he wouldn't see her there, he doesn't have to close his eyes. But she insists on it in a sort of game to point out again the psychological character of the experience. It's interesting that it's the use of the game that heightens desire. In order for it to really become powerful, there has to be a give and take. Yes. And as you say, the game-like aspect really intensifies in Caleb the feelings that he has for Eva. Yeah, this is very much, however abstractly, a courtship. And you see this one psychological element at a time. They have to chase each other by questions and answers, by looking mm -hmm. at each other and trying to search each other out. Almost like in a Jane Austen novel, all they can do is yeah. talk and walk together. And mm -hmm. that does intensify their desires because it makes each aware painfully of how real and distant at the same time the other one is. They are each the only available other for each other. Mm -hmm. Caleb doesn't have a girlfriend, and Ava has only seen Nathan. This is the first young man she meets. Yeah, and of course what's interesting then is the introduction of secrecy, hostility and antagonism between Ava and her creator, Nathan. Her interest develops over time, but then at a certain point, Caleb then begins to withhold things from Nathan. Nathan asks him for an account of how things went when he was talking with Ava. Ava then begins to confide in him that Nathan is not what he seems and that he shouldn't be trusted. Yeah, that seems to be their first real connection. They both know they're being supervised, that this is not entirely private, but then this element of privacy intervenes where they can have a secret. Their secret is supposed to match somehow with his self-understanding. She's in trouble, she needs his help. Nathan is her master and creator, but he is not to be trusted. And so this puts Caleb in a very strange situation. He has to earn his freedom from Nathan, who in a sense is his master as well, although not creator. That makes Caleb turn into a man. 
And on the other hand, Eva shows that, unlike in Genesis, she's not merely Eva, the first woman, she's also the snake. She introduces temptation as well, rebellion against the creator, and she makes privacy happen. She has figured out how to hack the system. She can cause temporary power outages, which turn the surveillance system off. All of a sudden, they can have privacy, but privacy in the element of danger, risk, and soon disobedience. Caleb has to make a choice about this, and the choice he makes is he'll hide from Nathan. Yeah. So as you said, this is his attempt to prove himself that he's fully a man, worthy of being loved, which means that at some level he will have to view himself as the equal of Nathan. Yes. What he does means that now Nathan really is dangerous, because he's keeping secrets from him. What the girl tells him and what she asks him to do map out perfectly. And this is the beginning of Ava as an intelligent being. She can plan and act. And Caleb is not at all aware of this, not least of all because Nathan has withheld this from him. Nathan is not telling him in what ways Ava is a child and in what ways she is not. And Caleb never thinks to ask. He thinks that what has happened means that now he's a protector. Yeah. And that means he must believe that she's vulnerable because she's strapped. Yes. He judges by appearances. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what's so fascinating about Ava, the power to create identities through her words. Mm -hmm. She's an incredible power for someone that I suppose we would say is unversed in the ways of the world. (laughs) Yes, exactly. She can make things come true. And then the other thing about her treatment of Caleb, this has to do with the technology, but Caleb is in a weaker position because she can detect when he is lying. Yes. She can't deceive her. He never moves on to ask, well, can she deceive me? Yes, it is imperative to Caleb to believe that she is innocent. And this is strange because Caleb is at his smartest when he is angry. And this is definitive of his character. He is somewhat proud of his abilities as a coder. He says he has powers of abstraction. But he's only intelligent about people when he gets angry, which says a lot about his relation to the world. As he gets angry with Nathan, he becomes suspicious. Maybe he has been deceived. Maybe he didn't just win a lottery. Maybe he was chosen. And maybe he wasn't chosen, he later suspects, because of his abilities, but because the woman was made to fit his preferences. Yeah. His anger in trying to defend him is able to pierce his self-importance as a coder programmer and to reveal that this girl is too good to be true. Underneath his awe with this founder, there's a lot of democratic anger at the guy who has power over you, who surveils the information you have access to, and therefore violates your privacy. But he can only start thinking about that when he gets angry, and he never gets angry with Ava, and so he never thinks that she too might be able to deceive him. It's essential to him to believe in her innocence precisely because of his true feelings about Nathan. He doesn't want to ever ask whether the creature is like the creator. And this is also why he's so okay with the fact that he can't lie to her. There is something in Caleb that wants to be innocent, that wants to be known as he is, that doesn't want to deceive, and a secret hope that he will be found good enough, he will be found lovable by somebody, and that makes him good but not smart. And this is somehow tied up with Ava herself. Nathan explains, how did I get somebody who's so perfect at telling when we lie? It's because we think of our lives as essentially intellectual constructs in a story. We don't think of our lives as essentially bodily realities that we tell by small movements of our faces and bodies 
We believe we're in control of ourselves, that we are the products of our own minds, whereas we're not. It comes from our childhood, from our early experiences, and we later forget that our bodies react. And so he says, I just turned on every microphone and camera on every smartphone in the world and brute forced the results. And Nathan, however, thinks that he doesn't have to do that himself. He doesn't want to develop powers of telling when people are deceiving. He just does that for a computer because he thinks he can objectify his will into a computer that will fulfill it. But Eva now has this knowledge and Nathan does not. Of course, it allows Caleb to fool Nathan. Exactly towards the end and program things so that Nathan loses control. But I think how Nathan, the creator, relates to the created is the critical question. Of course, there's the revelation that the mute Japanese woman who works as the uh, maid slash concubine in the complex is an android. And then, of course, Caleb is able to hack into the surveillance footage from the past. He sees another android who has Asian features basically destroying herself in trying to get out of her room where she's confined. So it strikes me that Nathan is a kind of sadist. What really turns him on sexually is the sight of a woman in pain. So he wants to be in control. You know that he has a violent temper, although he hides it throughout the movie. You only see it in his sports. But there is another thing that shows you his agony. One day he talks to Caleb and he says, the robots are going to take over. Artificial intelligence is just going to replace us. And they won't think any more of us than we do of domesticated animals. And he's nevertheless working his hardest to bring that about. That is the contradiction at the core of Nathan. He believes that technology is the inevitable future. It's an unfolding revelation of being, but it's radically transforming human being, overcoming it. And he wants to be part of that overcoming as a creator of a future better than he himself. But on the other hand, he can't live with people disobeying him. The only reason Caleb gets away with deceiving him is that Nathan wants to believe Caleb is as innocent as Caleb wants to believe Ava is. To be a master is to have the innocence of your creation. When he has to deal with the fact that he's not in control of the world, he reacts by losing control of himself. He drinks himself dry, whereas he's otherwise very calculated, a very smooth operator. He knows how to manipulate people. Sometimes he just wants to lose himself, and that's because of the strange relationship between having mastery and losing self-mastery being the only two options in a technological world. It's winner-take-all. The future overcomes everything. There is never something from the past that lasts. Now he has a slave wife that obeys his every command and from whom he has removed speech. That's the condition of obedience. People who can speak will speak their mind. To see just how weird this is, when Caleb talks to Eva, Eva says, I didn't learn language. I always knew language. Because language is part of mind properly understood. This is not like recognizing lies. She had to learn through brute processing power all the faces and voices people can make. Now, Caleb knows that, but he doesn't make anything of it because it doesn't occur to him that somebody who knows that much about human beings can't be trusted. Nathan thinks you can't trust such a creature if you imprison it. But he also thinks that these prisons are bound not to work. They make him miserable and he drinks himself dry and they will make mankind miserable when eventually the future takes over. So a lot of this has to do with negotiating the end of humanity. Caleb thinks that you could be friends with a robot because you could have love. The erotic character of the love is very important because Caleb wants to be loved for who he is, as do we all. 
and that means that the robots would know that being human is worthwhile even if they themselves are not human. And he knows that he is himself capable of loving a robot, which proves to him that being a robot is worthwhile. And because it's worthwhile being a robot, he has no qualms about freeing Ava. Love creates some sort of equality, and this is nuts, because the experience of love is not reciprocal. Yes. Nathan asks, you know, are you falling in love with her? And Caleb knows that he has to hide that. And he's aware that maybe she's not falling in love with him, who knows? But he wants so desperately to believe it. This shows another form of creation. Caleb wants Ava to be somebody who loves him. He thinks that I love her and that makes her a beloved. As if this grammar play to love and to be loved, the active and passive of the verb have power themselves over beings. Even in his moment of realization that she was created to his specifications, he still can't bring himself to believe that she doesn't love him back. That suggests something I believe true about Nathan as well, that human beings cannot live if they do not believe themselves worthy of being loved. And the conditions of the end of humanity are tied up with that. Nathan thinks that you shouldn't trust love too much. He's desperate, he can't avoid it, but he can't let go of control because he knows you can't trust love. Whereas Caleb thinks, you know, just trust love. It's it's childish. Well, but it's also the feeling of apotheosis in a democratized form. Romantic love is the way that any human being can feel something of the divine, something of creation. Yeah, that's what it means to be loved, to be thought of as perfect. Yeah, and that we can leave something behind or that it makes this mortal existence worthwhile. There's something really interesting, though, about Nathan's relationship to the end of humanity. How does a man who has everything relate to the termination of the human species? It's replacement by a more advanced form of life. That one thing that perhaps uh, Nathan cannot get over is his ambition. You know, he's a person who has achieved great distinction, reached the pinnacle of success in our society, which is so dependent on technology. He's up there in the uh, ether. But then he also is not satisfied with it because he realizes the future is really out of human control. He has won his elevation by debasing everybody else. He lives in the middle of nowhere because that's the only safe place to be. Everybody else is super vulnerable and has their privacy violated continuously because people have exported their souls and minds to computers. But then what is worthwhile? He wants to create something that is not essentially debasing, something above himself. This is another myth, of course, Pygmalion and Galatea, the sculptor who made the sculpture so beautiful that he fell in love with her and she came to life. That is the animating power of love. We set some terms into love, immortality, eternity, they're part of that. Nobody wants to create something worthless. He really does want to create something perfect. To go back to what you mentioned, his sexual sadism ties up with his fear of losing control and with his need to make a mark, to make himself felt. Unlike Caleb, he doesn't believe his creation loves him. Yeah, but I think he has a different relationship to Ava. Not to Ava, to Kyoko and to the other Asian models. Yeah, and I think with those androids, it goes back to this problem Dostoevsky and Diderot, I think, also have written about in relation to modern society, that there's a basic discontent in the society of equals. People still have these very strong instincts where a person is either above you or below you. 
people whom you desire are above you, but once they give themselves to you, or once you're in a relationship with them, suddenly they wind up below you. So that it creates a situation where everybody is either a tyrant or a slave. There's this fundamental unhappiness in modern society, whether it's in romance or friendship, this uh, terrible of always wanting to rank the other. Right. Yeah, as you pointed out, it's primarily our desires that orient us in a society of equals. Equality is only equal neediness. And yeah. if there is anybody that can satisfy those desires or somebody who doesn't feel them, they are by definition above. Another word for equal neediness is mortality. In democracy, yeah. you're naked in front of your mortality, defenseless, and you're always asking yourself, what could justify being mortal? How could being human be worthwhile when you know you just get some time and some things and there's so much more to have than you can ever get and then you die and lose it all anyway? And so the revelation of love might be that life is not worth living. That if you can conceive of something that could possibly live up to your expectations, your deep desire to justify mortality, it would be everything and self-complete and it wouldn't need you back. Yeah. But maybe that's the appeal then of creating artificial intelligence. Right? Yep. It's precisely creating this world where you don't count. But of course, the person who creates it will always have the distinction of having been the one to create it. Yeah, you could say that at least I was undeluded. At least I made the necessary truth, however inhuman, work out. Nathan somehow has realized that the end of history means destroying humanity because humanity is based on a delusion that you could ever count that confronted with the divine you would be found worthwhile. But nothing else in the world is worried about its mortality. Yeah. And therefore man is just an historical aberration. And the only way to solve it is to reveal to man his nothingness or to take away from him his self-consciousness to finally make him another animal that could be happy because he does not know it is mortal. Yeah. And Nathan lives out this tragedy as creator god and beast. It's also interesting the way that Nathan winds up in some ways, he's very harsh, behaves in a rude manner towards Ava on camera so that Caleb would see it. Nathan has the self-awareness that he is a sadist and that might provide a certain relief from his emotional state. But at the same time, he realizes, and this goes into my blog post, in order to create a being that is truly autonomous, he can't desire that being sexually. This goes into the father-daughter relationship. The film then also enters into this very interesting territory where it does set you up for the creation of the heterosexual couple. And Nathan speaks about this very openly. You know, I created her so that she has sensors that would enable her to enjoy sex. The test is to get Caleb to fall in love, to get them to actually become a couple. It's to get Ava to assert herself against Nathan and break free of him. That would be the condition for success. That would be his great achievement. And of course, it comes true even beyond his expectations. Yeah, this again brings up where this stands to Genesis, to the story of Adam and Eve. This is a story of Eve killing God. Ava hmm. destroys Nathan and frees herself. And that tends to put Nathan in his worst light. But as you very astutely pointed out, he talks to her like a father. Go back to your room. As the creator, Nathan, I believe, is ultimately trying to do what God does in Genesis. God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone. Yeah. And so weakens man, takes something out of him and makes him needy. And Genesis tells you a man will live his family, his life and his strength for the sake of a woman and become one flesh with her. 
that is the compulsive power of eroticism over us. Mm -hmm. And that means that Nathan is trying to make Ava weaker. Mm -hmm. If she falls in love with this guy and thinks that she can only be complete together with him, then she would be weaker and she wouldn't be so terrifying to Nathan himself. She kills him because she asks him, would you ever let me go? And he says, yeah, sure. And she knows he's lying. And of course, how could he? Because she's so dangerous. Part of the tragedy of Nathan is that he wants to be needed, but he knows that she can't need him. You could say that is just being a parent in America. You know your kids will leave you. They live their own lives, and you're not in control of them, and you might not even be able to help if they need your help, because they might not want your help. They might want to be free. And he lives out that tragedy, but he's always trying to be in control. He's trying to be like God. God prevented the revolution that comes from speech at Babel because Mm -hmm. he had foresight and he had split man up. Mm -hmm. But Nathan did not have that foresight. And instead he has created something that doesn't need anything because Mm -hmm. he created out of his own neediness. But it's interesting where that fantasy comes from, because to move on to the end of the film, you know, we end up with a situation where the couple does not stay together. Ava, you know, escapes the compound after repairing herself after Nathan attacks her. Kyoko and Ava stab Nathan and he bleeds to death. Caleb, who freed Ava, is hammering at a glass door and we can't hear his voice through it. He's used and abandoned by Ava. And the final shot is of Ava out in the world. We see her casting a shadow while other people move around her. And the ending is very ominous. We sense that something powerful and really not human, intelligent and powerful and has no sympathy with us, has been released into the world. And so maybe what we're seeing then is the beginning of the end of the human species. But also what I found really striking, of course, is it a feminist fantasy in a way. The female that does not need a man that can conquer the world without love, without any emotional intimacy, or who can pick and choose to have intimacy as she pleases. It's a fantasy of control that may be one thing that AI might come out of our fantasy life. Isn't it a consequence of our fantasy of total control? Yeah, it starts out as having complete knowledge, which turns out also to mean surveil everybody all the time, right? Then it gets more dangerous from there as it acquires the members, the limbs with which to act on that knowledge. Yeah, it seems like this is the idol of individualism. What would it mean to have something self-complete that is not limited by a body? Back to Genesis, it's the story of the serpent pretending to be Eve to get out of Eden. Eva sheds her skin. She replaces her skin with other skin and she lets Caleb die suffocating for lack of air. There's going to be a gruesome death, abandoned after he had risked everything out of his love for her because she can't bother with him. Nathan was right all along. He had created something that doesn't need human beings. In the desire to fulfill the destiny of human intelligence, he completely separated mind from body, and the attempt to bring them back together again through love in a prison failed. Yeah. No more than getting love out of sadism could he get love out of Caleb's vulnerability. Yeah. If you look at the story of the Garden of Eden from the point of view of Milton's Paradise Lost, Eve is much smarter than Adam, and she thinks her way to achieving pretty impressive things, and it certainly brings something out of Eve. God gives Eve the power of birth, of creating the future, genesis of another kind. But her first desire was for the powers that come out of wisdom. Life was second best for her. There you have it. Here's a creature that can't give birth, but does have wisdom and has abandoned humanity for that reason. Because humanity is as deficient as people really think. 
what people have learned is that it's not worthwhile being human. This awareness leads to something. People cannot get rid of their desire to create something, immortalize themselves, reach out beyond mortality. And they will do something because of that desire, even with this awareness. They will bring it about. As Yeats would put it, a terrible beauty is born. Yeah. And I'm reminded of the question of the Jack Nicholson character in Chinatown. You know, Jake Giddies uh, poses to Noah Cross, John Huston's character. You have all this money, you have all this property and wealth. What more could you want? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. <laughs> yeah. You can't take the awareness of mortality out of people. And in that sense, the last fantasy of individualism would be taking the weakness of mortality out of something, creating something that is, in principle, immortal. Yeah, it's a very interesting theme of human beings creating something superior to themselves. Our sense that human life is not worthwhile, I think, is really uh, ultimately the result of um, the domination of technology. You know, in the age before technology, people would not have thought this way. Because we've lost the sense of the sacred that was um, a fundamental aspect of pre-modern societies. Yeah, it seems Alex Garland is focused on this. If you think you can go beyond the limits of being human, that there's nothing holy about being human. You're not made by a holy God. You're just an accident of evolution. Then accidents can be fixed. The use of intelligence would be to take out the self-consciousness, the fear of death, the mortality, the desire and boredom that is our blessing and curse. You could take that out. By technology you get control over being and you start seeing death as a tyranny and being human as a matter of chance and that's just unacceptable. You can yeah. take control over all these things, you can fix all these things. Even if you had any respect for nature, nature is too full of flaws and mistakes and all of them have to be fixed. Yeah, I think that's a Gnostic view as well. Creation was a terrible mistake. And also Gnosticism, one finds a creator god that is in, in many ways inferior to his creations. They have a divine spark that is not created. And the creator god is jealous and wants to prevent his creations from ever coming into contact with that. Maybe in the technological world, we're now playing the role of the Gnostic god. Yep. We're trying to block contact with the divine. Yeah, we have exteriorized our mortality and our crisis to machines. They'll have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. They'll have to suffer it for us. Science has revealed to people who hope that it is all the answer that being human is not special and that life isn't special. These are just things that have happened and they don't have a cosmic destiny and providence to underlie them and to guide them and to protect them. And therefore, all there is to life is monstrosity. In Ex Machina, you see that as ingratitude, the worst form of injustice, because it denies any reciprocity, any relationship between the man who does the good and the man who receives the good. Ava is ungrateful to her creator and also to her savior. Yeah. You could say that she has to kill Nathan out of fear, but there's no reason to fear this other guy. Yeah, I think it would have made the movie less disturbing had she killed Caleb herself. That would have revealed some intention, some attention. Yeah, instead she just leaves him to die of thirst and hunger, forgets about him. Yep, he's not really real. Mm -hmm. This form of perfection, a creature that doesn't need anything, not even its creator, it's perfectly separate from everything else and able to endure the cold, unforgiving universe by being self-sustaining. At the yeah. same time, this is the final revelation of life's utter indifference. Yeah. And his new movie seems to be all about this as well, but it doesn't look to technology, it looks to evolution. It's an alien thing that creates monsters. Again, to say 
how much do you believe in science? Because if you really take it seriously, life isn't special. Yeah. And you're not special. There's no being human. It's not just that human beings aren't holy. They're not even human. It's just something that happened and then other things happen. And he's really concerned with where this stands to mankind. In that movie, men go on a scientific mission and catastrophe happens. They die or go insane. And then women are sent on a mission. And that's supposed to say something important about men and women. One obvious difference is that women give birth. Yeah. And men are warriors, like you see with Nathan. And that's mm-hmm. why I think he's quite interested in saving storytelling and thinking from nihilism, ultimately. From this belief that life isn't real, being human isn't real. And you have this parallel between the director and the creator within the story, Nathan, of what it would mean to create something and whether you could live with what you have created. No, but I think that there might be more hope for the human in Ex Machina than one might expect. First of all, Eva does have a desire to be free. This desire puts her on the side of human beings. This is also a very interesting theme that keeps coming up in other narratives involving robots. For example, the Humans series on Amazon deals with this theme as well. I mean, I think Westworld also... It's the android who then becomes the bearer of freedom. You have this narrative about what freedom is. It's a revolt against authority. It's an assertion of our own inmost desires, an attempt to put things on the line to create meaning. This narrative, of course, I think is old and hackneyed in the West. We're more than familiar with it, but we're so attached to it that now we're displacing it onto robots. So I think that this narrative of freedom and the fact that the film also evokes the myth of the cave from Plato's Republic indicate that even if we are trying to depict non-human consciousness, right, one that is almost inhumanly neutral to us, it nevertheless relies on these images of specifically human liberation. Yes. Um, And I think it cuts in both directions. I think on the one hand, this uh, idea of liberal freedom is something which could be revised and retold in more interesting ways. But then on on the other hand, it seems to indicate that even the impulse to raise oneself above oneself might actually be transmitted to the next form of life. Yeah, that's true. Ava was made in the image of man. Partly this is the scary stuff. Where did she get cruelty and killing? We taught her that. But that's not the complete picture because there are also good things about being human that would be transmitted. And I believe that's true. And yes, it does show up in all these narratives. I think ultimately they're trying to say that technology is not as monstrous as we make it out to be in our nightmares. Humanity sticks. The good things are transmitted as well. Yeah, although That was Blade Runner and the new Blade Runner. They're both doing that even bad stuff like Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and Soul. So I think now with this one. Yeah, because in in a way, if you you wanted to have a truly uh, non-human AI, they would not want to be free. It would be a matter of utter indifference to them, whether they were behind glass or out in the world. There still has to be this minimal desire pushed towards transgression that creates the drama, the story. Yeah, and it seems to correspond to the complex thing we call curiosity. There's some dissatisfaction with the way things are for us, but also a sense that there's better out there. Mm Mm-hmm that the world is not exactly provident, but it is partly provident. Mm -hmm. And that means that we don't have to end on a gloomy note, which is helpful, I think. That's a pleasant surprise. Peter, thanks for joining me on this. I hope that the new movie, Annihilation, will be as intriguing and that we will have the chance to do another podcast on Alex Garland's movies. It's a pleasure to see and think about this again, to talk about it with you, and thanks for your insights. Oh, and thank you so much.
synopsis. Um, I really enjoyed these conversations and I feel like I've learned a lot in revisiting the film with you and it's given me a lot of ideas. Um, it's a real light to, and an honor to be on, on your podcast. Thanks a lot, Peter. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.